Good morning. I don't know about you, but kids blow me away on a regular basis, right? Like, you don't even, they don't even have to be your kids or your grandkids. Like, kids just blow me away on a regular basis. They seem to bring an energy and a vitality to just about everything, and especially to Christmas. I remember our first Christmas with a baby. We had Keaton in November, and it was just like, it was a totally new experience for me. And then you fast forward to last week when the children were leading us in worship, and and I don't use that phrase lightly because so often in my experience that's been kids kind of half singing to a soundtrack and last week was truly leading us in worship the music was live that they had learned and practiced and when they were singing I bring an offering of worship to my king it was about all I could do to hold it together they just bring something special to those moments but one of the things that probably impresses me the most about kids is the way they can take a fall and bounce right back up. I mean, anybody else agree? Like, I have seen my kids hit the deck so hard that if it was me, I'm not sure I would ever get up again. And then they're right back up on their feet. Come on, Dad, let's go. And I'm thinking, I've got my phone out half ready to call an ambulance because I know that's what I would need if it was me. In fact, kids even fall on purpose. Have you ever witnessed this? They fall on purpose and then they laugh about it right? I've got boys, so I've seen them do this many times. I don't know if girls do this. I assume they do this, but they'll take like two or three running steps and then jump and slide on their knees. Have you ever seen kids do that on a hard floor? And I'm just cringing inside. I'm thinking, why would anybody do that on purpose? And they love it. And it's kind of fun to watch them do it in the gym because you don't really slide in the gym. So they just stop. (laughs) Sometimes they tumble over, but they think that's delightful as well. But it's almost as if when you watch a child do that, it's almost as if they love falling on their knees. And that's the title of our message today as we bring our A Weary World Rejoices series to an end. It's that climactic line in the song, at least for me, when somebody who sings it very well says, Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices. And for me, that is the response that worship engenders in my mind. It's the climax of that song and it's the final week of this series. And there are a number of examples in the Christmas story of people worshiping these outbursts of worship, these outbursts of praise, a recognition of what is taking place and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ and what it means. And their response to that is worship. But I think my favorite is probably the Magi. The wise men, the three kings of Orient, if you know the song. And so I want to read from Matthew chapter 2 today, and I want to reflect on a couple of key points in this story of the Magi coming to worship the king of kings. It's on page 1497 if you're in the room and have one of the blue hardcover Bibles. If you're joining us online, it will be on the screens, but I always encourage people to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you, whether that's a paper copy or a digital copy. And so I'm just going to read a couple, two, three, four verses at a time as we walk through this passage and then pause and reflect on the significance of it. 
And so in verses 1 and 2, we read that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, just a little side note here. You may or may not be aware. I know it was mind-blowing to me when I first realized the three wise men, or however many there were, we sometimes assume there were three because there's three gifts mentioned, but there could have been more. There could have been one that brought three, or two that brought three, because it is plural. But they were not at the manger scene. And that's like, oh, really? There's always somebody that's very shocked to learn this. I was that person at one time, and then I kind of traced it out, and I realized, yeah, that it, there's, it's a manger when he's born, but it's a house here in Matthew 2. It's referred to as a baby in the manger and now a child at the house. And, and then there's that whole two-year time frame with Herod where he kills all the children in, in Bethlehem to make sure that he can try to exterminate the Christ child. So, so it was as much as two years later that they arrive in Jerusalem and make this journey. And we're not quite sure why Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are still in Bethlehem. No information is given. There's some speculation on this. It's reasonable to assume that that maybe there weren't as many questions, there weren't as many whispers in Bethlehem as there were in Nazareth, and so they had stayed. We're not 100% sure why, but we know that the wise men were not there. Now, the question always comes up, okay, now, Pastor Mark, what do I do with the wise men in my nativity set, though, right? And I always tell them, well, just figure out where is east and put them clear across the house east from the manger scene. And you'll be biblically accurate. And it's a great conversation starter. It's like, why are the wise men over there? Well, that's Babylon. Here's Jerusalem, Bethlehem. You know, we can trace it all out. It's a fun little side note. But I also get the question sometimes, well, who were the magi? Like, what is this magi all about? And it's, it's a Greek word, magoi. Or magos is the plural in the Greek language that the New Testament is translated into. And from what we can tell, they were learned men, maybe priests um, from the east, from maybe the region of Babylon. In fact, there's even speculation, which is kind of interesting to consider, that, uh, that perhaps like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in Daniel 1 and 2 of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So there was... There was the Hebrew Old Testament way back when. There was also a Greek version when Greek became the, the language internationally that most people uh, spoke in as far as scholarship was concerned. So there was a Greek translation. Daniel and his friends, in the book of Daniel, it's the Greek word magoi or magos. And so some have speculated, this isn't hard, solid, factual, evidence-based reality, but speculated that, that maybe there was a, like a school that flowed down from Daniel and would have been familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, would have known the prophecies, would have been interpreting things with all of the information that's available. And we know that there were Jews that were sent out in the diaspora as as God's people were scattered around the world through the Babylonian exile, through the Assyrian exile. We know that when they sent people back, they kept the best and the brightest if they possibly could. So it's reasonable to expect that these were, these were people of a Jewish lineage. And that's why they would come 800 miles through the desert with attendants and with valuable gifts 
to worship this child. It's possible. We don't know for sure. The details aren't fleshed out completely, but it's possible. What we do know is that they say they saw a star rising, and they have come to worship him. This was the purpose of their journey. It wasn't a sidelight. It wasn't like, hey, you know, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's spend, you know, uh, some time in the Holy Lands. And while we're there, maybe we'll wash, worship the king, born king of the Jews. No, they, they came specifically for this. They saw this. They were propelled to action. And they made great, great sacrifices of time and of resources in order to be there. From what we can tell, it was anywhere from seven to 800 miles that they journeyed from the east, from Babylon, all the way to Jerusalem by the common route, and they would have probably had attendance. And if they could average 20 miles a day, that would have put them at 35 to 40 days, just one way, and then turning around and going back. So there was tremendous effort, there was tremendous expense, and all of that points to the great value that they placed on this opportunity to go and to worship the one they call born king of the Jews. And I thought about that as I was reading through this passage this morning. They say he was born king of the Jews, and that's fascinating to me because people typically aren't born king, right? If you're born and you will become king, that means your father is king or you're in the lineage of kings or at some point in your life, maybe you're like David, you'll become king and be court. He was born king. Yes, he was also the prince of peace, but he was born king. That was his title. He was king of kings, lord of lords. And they recognized this and they chose to make the effort. And so I'm thinking they must have been sure. I don't think you go 800 miles On a hunch, this time of year, I don't think you go 800 miles on a hunch today, right? you got to be pretty sure if you're going to go to that kind of effort. And they say they saw the star rising, and that's significant, and it's kind of fascinating, especially if you've ever paid any attention to the night sky. I'm pretty fascinated by all things with the sky. I like watching birds fly around. I can barely see a plane taking off without stopping and just kind of marveling at the fact that something that weighs 90 or 100 or 150 tons is flying through the air. I even had the privilege this summer to be riding on the bike path right where it kind of goes up, reaches its northernmost point, and comes back down south is right where the runways from the airport are. And as I was going, suddenly this deafening noise. I looked it up later. It was probably between 130 and 140 decibels. Overwhelmed all of my senses as two fighter planes took off And if you've ever seen a fighter plane take off at that close of a range, it is something to see and you feel the power. I'm just blown away with the sky and all things that happen in the sky. I'm blown away at the stars. I love sunsets. I love sunrises. I'm always looking (laughs) at the sky. And so this idea of a star rising and the behavior that is recorded here is kind of unique. And I've mentioned this before, I believe. There's a fascinating documentary that presents some very plausible and likely explanations for the Bethlehem star. And it's called The Star of Bethlehem. You can look it up on YouTube. It's free to watch. You can go to Star of Bethlehem, or I'm sorry, BethlehemStar.net. And it explains how 
how what probably happened was a conjunction between Jupiter, which gets very, very bright in that time of the year, and Regulus, which is a known star system that's pretty static, but Jupiter moves because Jupiter is orbiting the same sun as we are, and our world is turning, and our world is orbiting that sun at a different speed, and so there's all kinds of dynamics, and it's, it's possible that Jupiter could come by Regulus, which is a Latin word for king, uh, come by, pass over, come back, and make that through a retrograde motion. So it's really fascinating to consider all of this. And you can look into that. There's other constellations that are involved at that time. Leo, the lion, the lion of Judah. Virgo, the virgin, the virgin Mary. It's almost like God had this whole thing planned out. And all of this is taking place. And these magi from the east pieced it all together. They figured it all out. They said, we know exactly what that is. And they got on their camels and they packed their bags and they made the journey because he was worth it. Because he was worthy of that kind of effort, that kind of expense, that kind of time. And it blows me away because Pastor Zach and I did not talk about this message very much. Like he knew the broad strokes, but he didn't know we were going to be focusing on how worthy Jesus is of that kind of worship. And then in the opening, he shares that passage from Revelation. We didn't talk about it, but I think we were talking to the same person, and he was stitching things together. And so that's kind of cool, because their purpose was worship. Worship is really worthship. It's saying something is worth the time, the expense, the effort that goes into it. And so that sort of sets the stage. Verses 3 through 6 continue the story or carry on the narrative. When King Herod heard this, that these magi had come from the east, that they were seeking the one born king of the Jews, Herod was the king of the Jews, right? So he says, this is very disturbing. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where was the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And here's what's fascinating to me. The same news, the same information that inspired the Magi to take this trip that involved a great amount of time, a great amount of effort, a great amount of resources, that inspired them, it disturbed Herod. Same information, two different people, two different settings, two different contexts. You see, when he hears that people have come to this great of a length to come and worship one born king of the Jews, he said, wait a minute, I'm king of the Jews. And he's disturbed because now his power and his position and his authority are potentially at risk. And I think sometimes it's the same today. The same news that we celebrate as Christmas in here, in this context that captivates our hearts, that inspires us to acts of love and of courage and of hope in this world, is met by the world around us very differently. And we need to be mindful of that. We need to understand that. And we need to try to help them to know what we know, to see what we see, if we possibly can. And so he calls together the priests and the teachers, and they are familiar with the prophecies as well, and they identify Bethlehem as the location. 
And so in verse 7, Herod calls the Magi secretly and finds out from them the exact time the star appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now I'm pretty sure we can all read between the lines what Herod's real intentions are, especially as the story continues when he finds out he's been tricked by the Magi in a few verses we see clearly what his true colors were. But we are going to focus today on our, on our Magi. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So when you look at verse 10 there, and it says they were overjoyed. We have to understand this is describing uncontainable joy. Their response and the knowledge of where that was leading them and the confirmation of what they would find there. They were overjoyed. They were beside themselves with joy. They were unable to contain the joy that they had. Which I think is a confirmation that they at least had some Jewish heritage. They at least had some Jewish lineage. Why would pagans be so excited about this event? I think they had come down through that, that line. Or at least had a relationship to somebody who did. They understood the significance of this. They knew something. And then we're told in verse 11. That when they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. They fell to their knees. That, that language there means to prostrate yourself. To prostrate yourself, to, to fall not only to your knees, but to bow down. And it's almost a word picture, if you look at it, of kissing the ground in front of a person. Like, like that's the level of adoration that is being communicated here from these wise and learned men. These, these kings of Orient that had come, but they recognized the king of kings. They bow down in front of him. They submit, they surrender, they express their deep love, their deep respect, their deep reverence and awe as they bow down and worship him. And it occurs to me that literally and figuratively, falling on our knees is truly the only appropriate response to encountering the glory of God. Like when they see it, they hit the deck. They fall on their knees and they worship. And as they rise, they, they give gifts. That's why we give gifts at Christmas. That's where it all started. It was with these, these magi, these kings of the Orient that came. And they give these gifts of great value to the king of kings. It's a tangible expression of their worship of the worth that he has. And knowing what we know now, Joseph is warned in a dream not to go back to Nazareth, to get out of Dodge, so to speak, and they get up in the middle of the night and they take off to Egypt, where they would have been destitute. 
without food, without clothing, without shelter, without anything, if it had not been for the Magi bringing them gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't think Mary was putting that on her wrists, you know, behind her ears. I think they were able to sell that. They were able to convert that and they were able to live in Egypt until it was safe to return. You see how their act of adoration, their act of obedience, their act of worship ends up providing for the king of kings as he makes his way into Egypt and returns. And so the Magi knew something, and that's our bottom line today. To know God is to love God. And to love God is to worship God. To know God is to love God and to worship God. They go hand in hand. If you do not love God, you don't know him. You just don't. And it's okay. Last week I shared about being curious, being convinced, and being committed. If you're not captivated by God, you just don't know all there is to know about him yet. Because if you did, you would love him. And you would worship him. And it would be easy to do those things. It would be easy to communicate the, the value, the worth that he has. They were convinced and they were committed to the cost of the journey to the time that it involved. They had to go. They could not stay where they were. They had to go and worship. They had to go and present their gifts. There was nobody compelling them other than their own spirit resonating with the spirit of God that was drawing them forward. To know God is to love God and to worship God. So this is not just intellectual knowing. This goes beyond intellectual knowledge to experiential knowledge. One way to think about this is that I can tell you honey is sweet. I can describe to you in great detail how sweet honey is and how maybe it's different from maple syrup or from plain sugar. And we can talk an awful lot about how honey is sweet to the point that you are convinced honey is sweet. But there is no comparison to knowing honey is sweet and actually tasting honey for the first time. As your senses kind of explode and and now all the theoretical knowledge and the information connects with the experience that honey is in fact sweet. There's a big difference between knowledge on its own, intellectual knowledge, and experiential knowledge. Being told and believing honey is sweet is very different than tasting it yourself. And so the question becomes, have you bowed down Have you fully surrendered? Have you submitted? And when was the last time? Do you do this on a regular basis? Do you do this on a daily basis? Putting Christ in the place that he belongs and putting yourself in the place that you belong, bowing in worship to him. Tim Keller tells the story, it was a very formative story in his own life. He was at a seminar with Barbara Boyd in the 70s. And she gave an illustration that is so powerful that I want to share it with you today. She says, he says, she took a piece of paper and she said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which we estimate today to be about 93 million miles, if that's the size or the, the, the width of a sheet of paper, that 93 million miles, compress that all the way down to the width of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. 
your mind blown yet? And just the, the diameter of our galaxy, the Milky Way, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the Milky Way galaxy is. That our sun, our star, is just a small part of. That our earth is just a small part of 93 million miles away. And then you go beyond that and you say, well, our Milky Way is just a speck of dust in the visible universe. And she asked, is is the Lord who upholds all that by the word of his power, which scripture tells us, he holds up everything we can see and everything we can't see. Is that kind of being... Someone you ask into your life as an assistant? Is the being that can create all that and uphold all that by the word of his power, is that somebody you bring on as a consultant? You ever been in a business setting? You know, the consultant comes in, you pay him a bunch of money, you don't do anything they say, right? You put it in a binder and put it on the shelf and you go on doing the things the way they did. Is that how we should treat the king of kings, the lord of lords? As an assistant, as a consultant, somebody we go to when, you know, things get a little dicey. Or is that somebody we fall on our knees and worship on a regular basis? And we go to the expense and we go to the effort and we give the time. Because to know God is to love God and to worship God. So a good question that we should all ask ourselves on a regular basis. Do I know him? Do I know him like that? Do I know what the Magi knew that inspired them to go to those lengths and those expenses in order to worship him? Do you know him? Because it is worth the effort to come to him. It is worth the effort to see him as he truly is. It is worth the effort to worship him as he is worthy of being worshipped. Does your life evidence total surrender to him? Does your life evidence that type of adoration? I think we all fall short at times. It's what we do when it becomes evident to us. Do we set out on that journey of the Magi, sparing no expense or effort or time to come and worship our King? What gifts could you bring to Christ this Christmas? He doesn't need the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh anymore. But I guarantee he would love more time with us. That's how you get to know him, is time. If you made a new friend or you started dating somebody, or you think about a time in your life when you really, really wanted to know somebody. Think about your spouse When you first met and you could not wait to know them better, you spent time. You sacrificed. Other things on your calendar kind of got pushed to the side so that you could have more time, so that you could spend more time. You could have shared experiences. You wanted to do everything you possibly could with them. You wanted to go places together. You wanted to experience things together. You wanted to know them. It was worth the energy. It was worth the resources because there was a commitment. And at some point, that commitment was made. And if there is not a continual flow of energy and of resources and of commitment and of time in that relationship, it too will grow stale. And so, in many ways, we can approach 
our own Heavenly Father that way. Worthy of the time, worthy of the energy, worthy of the commitment that we bring Him. So I invite the uh, worship team to come up as we bring this message to a close and, and just encourage you to spend some time reflecting on that. What could I bring my King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, what could I bring Him this Christmas? And if you're hearing this for the first time or you recognize, you know, I've never really, never really thought of it like that. Then maybe your heart would be the most appropriate gift if you've never given that to Jesus. Maybe this Christmas the gift that you bring him is your heart, your very life. And you lay it at his feet and you say, do with it what you will. And you begin a relationship with him where you get to know him where it becomes easy to worship him, easy to give him time and to give him effort and give him energy. We're going to respond in worship in just a moment. And as we do, I want to encourage you, if you are able and you are willing, to come to an altar for a moment, to fall on your knees, to worship your king. Don't do it if you're not going to be able to get back up. But if you can, come and worship your king. Stay where you're seated and worship your king as we sing this song. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for who you are and who you are to us. And as we think about the idea that love goes first and how you went first in our lives, Lord, help us to come to you, to fall on our knees to worship you to lay our hearts and our lives before you because you are worthy in Jesus name we pray